You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's installment of SpyCast. This week is a double header to coincide with the fall of the Berlin Wall on November the 9th, 1989. Part one looks at Soviet defectors who made the journey from east to west, and the other part looks at one particularly notable example of someone who made the same journey in the opposite direction. Part one, Soviet defectors, revelations of renegade intelligence officers, a conversation with world-leading expert Kevin Reel. Freedom has many difficulties, said JFK in his Berlin speech, and democracy is not perfect, but we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in. What was it like to leave that type of system, though, to come from behind the Iron Curtain and cross the East-West physical and ideological divide? Kevin Reel speaks Russian. He was a counterintelligence analyst at the FBI and the DIA. He was personally supervised by Robert Hansen, and he has a bit of an obsession with Soviet defectors, and we are so much better for it. He's the author of Soviet Defectors, Revelations of Renegade Intelligence Officers, 1924-54, and part two is coming soon. Just to start, Kevin, I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit more about your career, some of the things that you've been up to, so just, just in a nutshell... Well, I started um, right out of my undergraduate in the intelligence community. I started as a Russian translator working for the FBI. Actually, um, the FBI recruiters came into our Russian language classes in school. This, this was still during the, uh, the Cold War, and they, and they persuaded me to apply. So I, I started off as a Russian translator and moved from that to being an analyst where I then worked for most of the past 30 years, looking specifically at um, foreign intelligence activities, foreign intelligence services, studying them, how they operate, how they operate against the United States in particular. I began uh, with the FBI in the 1990s, and in the early 2000s, I moved to the Department of Defense, where I've been since then. What year was it that you joined 
the FBI. I joined the FBI in 1990, and I joined initially. Um, I was at university in Utah, and they the FBI came to our classes saying we need Russian linguists because there was still a need for that. And it wasn't long after I started working that Russian linguists were not as needed. Bad timing, huh? <laughs> but I still got to, to work in counterintelligence, which has been a good good time. And is it Utah that you're from? Is that where you were born and raised? I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, and I lived in Utah. I went to school there. I went to uh, secondary school and to uh, to university in Utah, at Brigham Young University. How did you stumble into Russian? I started as a chemistry major right out of high school. And Russian was was just a language that I took there. My university had a language requirement for all undergraduates. And I chose Russian then because I thought it was interesting. Um, it was more interesting than everyone else took Spanish. So I, I just took Russian. I left college for a couple of years and came back. I was, I was in, I uh, went to the army to the Army National Guard, and I, I, was sent, I was sent to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, where I studied Russian full-time for about two years. And then after that, after a couple of years of being away, I went back to university and changed my major to Russian because I had at that point taken a number of years, and it made sense to continue with that. So Russian was just what I studied the most, um, and it became actually more interesting to me than chemistry as time went on. Why did you make the shift from the FBI over to the Department of Defense? Was it for career purposes? Was it just a change? Was it better promotion prospects? It was career purposes. And at the time, analysts in the FBI had a more restricted long-term career opportunity. That has since become much better after I left, but I moved to the Department of Defense partially for longer-term career opportunities, but also because the uh, the uh, Department of Defense initially sent me overseas to an assignment in the UK where I worked for about six years, and that and was an opportunity I was looking forward to as well. So, it, both for career opportunities and for the for the uh, chance to to live and work in the UK. So one of the things that I think are, tell us a little bit more about that, about working under Bob Hansen. It was interesting working for Bob Hansen. He was a very different type of person. He didn't fit the mold of an FBI special agent very well. He was a computer hacker. He was actually very proficient with computers. This was early on. So this was in the early 90s when there really wasn't much of an internet, but he was very capable with programming Unix systems. And he did that um, on his own. And he did it sometimes for the FBI too, even though they didn't always want him to. So I was in England when his arrest was announced. So I wasn't in the United States, but I, I just saw his picture on the news. Uh, and I thought, why, why, why Bob Hansen on the news? Then they announced the reason and it was was just floored. I mean, I had worked for him nine years previous to that. And it was shocking at the time, 
But as time went on, and as more came out about that case, it seemed more natural because he did have some some unusual uh, character traits, and his ability to compartment his activities was was uh, fortunately unlike almost anyone else. You know, that, that is a characteristic that most people probably don't want to develop, but he was able to compartment very separate pieces of his world. And I only saw a couple of those, obviously. I didn't see all of them because those things don't come out when you're at work. But um, there were certain parts of his world that, that were very different than the rest of the FBI special agents around. Are there any particular memories or vignettes that come to mind when someone mentions the words Bob Hansen to you? Well, he was actually pretty nice to me. He actually treated me okay. In about 1992 timeframe, when dial-up modems were still the access to the internet, he was trying to kind of teach me to program Unix and to be a hacker like him. And he brought me a nice modem, a 14.4 baud modem, 14.4k baud modem, which was much nicer than what I had. I had the cheapest that existed at the time. And he said, I went and bought a nicer one. So here you can have this one. And I had no idea that the money he used to buy that nicer modem, which at the time was probably several hundred dollars, may have actually come from a Soviet handler. I would have had no reason to think that. But he just gave me a nicer modem that I had. And I thought, he, with the intention just to make kind of help me to improve my skills. But uh, that's what I think of. I mean, I, when I saw him arrested, it was quite shocking. So you actually were were working with him sometimes on a daily basis. It wasn't just I worked in his unit and I was one of 200 people and he may or may not have remembered my name. He was leaning over your shoulder, instructing you on how to do certain parts of your job. He was my direct supervisor. So yes, I saw him on a daily basis and and um, the unit didn't have 200 people. It had maybe 15. And so, yes, I, I worked with Bob, um, with Frank Pigluzzi as well, it was in the same unit. So he was one of the special agents in that unit, the supervisor of special agents, and I was an analyst in that unit. And so I worked on a regular basis with him, yes. So for people that aren't part of the FBI world, just help them understand that relationship between the analysts and the special agents. So for the FBI as an intelligence analyst, it's, it's counterintelligence we're talking about. Yes, that's correct. So basically, making the links that are needed to support investigations. FBI is a primarily an investigative organization, so it um, it it looks for leads to follow, and the analyst's job is to help to um, identify those leads based upon what's been collected and what's been already put together previously. Um, the analyst's job in the FBI has changed a lot since I was there. I, mean, I left in 1998, so that, that many years ago, and it is much more side by side with the agents today than it was then. There were many, there are more, there are many more analysts in the field today than there were when I was an analyst. Uh, most most analysts at the FBI then were in headquarters, which is where I was, and so 
that relationship has has probably become much closer than it was when I was there. And that's one of the reasons that I probably left because I, I wasn't, I was looking for a little more direct interaction and the analysts had a little less of that at the time. And I mean, one of the questions that immediately comes to mind when I hear of people that worked with Bob Hansen, did you ever reach out after all of this went down? Have you ever been tempted to write him a letter or written him a letter, even if it's to excoriate him or berate him or try to work out what happened? Or has it just never crossed your mind? It hasn't crossed my mind, really, no. I, he he doesn't need me to help him suffer. I mean, he's got plenty of reason to uh, beat himself up now. So I, I, I have not ever tried to to reach out to him. He's been in federal penitentiary since, I mean, for, for a long time now and for 20 years now. In fact, this year is 20 years for him, his arrest. And I, it wouldn't have been any good for him or me to reach out to him. To move on to the rest of your career, like tell us the sorts of things that you were doing when you were in this unit for Robert Hansen. Well, that unit was called the National Security Threat List Unit. Um, it was created after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and after the Cold War was over. So I moved there after being a Russian linguist full time. And it was looking at how to apply counterintelligence resources in a non-Cold War environment. So looking at some non-traditional types of things that the FBI had, hadn't always been involved in, some of the non-traditional types of cases. So that was the, the, the types of things that I was working with Bob on. A lot of people will know Robert Hansen as being the fox who was inside the hen house and all those types of metaphors. Like, was this focused on Russian counterintelligence operations or was it just a you know, variety of different countries and regions? It was a variety. Um, in fact, most of it was not Russian. He had worked Russian issues earlier in his career, um, but while I was working with him, it wasn't. It was mostly non-Russian. Tell us a little bit more about after you leave that unit. So the rest of your time in the FBI before you make the shift over to the the DOD. Tell us some of the other things that you were up to. In 1994, just after Aldrich Ames was arrested the U.S. government created something called the National Counterintelligence Center, which was an interagency center that coordinated counterintelligence activities across the whole federal government. And I was detailed there as an analyst from, for several years. Um, and, um, and there I did kind of national-level counterintelligence analysis looking at uh, broader issues. Um, often involving those those same post-Cold War concerns that I was looking at at the FBI, but uh, just at an interagency national level. Actually, was the primary drafter on something called the, the first the first annual annual report to Congress on economic collection and industrial espionage, which has since morphed over the years. But I was the main, the, the primary drafter for that first one in 1995, which was a congressionally mandated study 
on economic-related um, intelligence activities. That's something that we see increasingly in the news, industrial espionage, economic espionage. Tell us about what it was like back then and some of the things that you were up to. Well, the when the Soviet Union dissolved, the concept of economic espionage became much more prominent. There were some very famous quotes. Of a, for example, I'm sure you've heard, uh, there was a French official who at one point in the early 90s said, in politics, we are allies, but in economics, we are adversaries. And those sorts of comments were gaining a lot of traction. There was a book published in the early 1990s called Friendly Spies that looked at our allies and the activities that they conducted against us in the economic realm, particularly. That was immediate post-Soviet era where a lot of counterintelligence was was going. Um, it changed after that um, because uh, other adversaries either rose arose to more prominence or the some more more recently traditional adversaries have risen back to prominence again. But in the in the early to mid 1990s, the uh, activities against economic collection and industrial espionage were were uh, high priorities to the point that um, in the mid, I think it was 1995 or 1996, the U.S. Congress passed the Economic Espionage Statute, which was new at the time, to more fully address, in a legal sense, the concerns of economic collection. Tell us a little bit more about that period when you make the shift over to the DOD. Tell us the extent to which it was a continuation of what you'd done before and to what extent you were doing something completely different in you. Wherever you work, you have a customer set for your analysis, a, a group of decision makers who are the main customers of your analysis. And when you move from one agency to another, that customer set becomes completely different. And the requirements of that customer set become different. So the analysis that I was doing from the FBI for the FBI was looking specifically at FBI interests, at investigative interests. When I moved to the Department of Defense, I was looking at the the uh, DOD interests, at threats to the Department of Defense, at how foreign intelligence services were act, uh, operating um, against DOD interests, particularly in Europe where I was. So, so yes, there were there were some differences based upon the uh, the uh, portfolios of the agencies where I was working, but there were some commonalities as well because that that common concept of um, looking at the threats that are posed by foreign intelligence services. You know, to what extent is it a different skill set to be an effective analyst for the DOD and one for the FBI? So I guess the question is, is it, is it the same set of tools? You have to kind of reskill somewhat. Help us understand that. The high-level skills are pretty much exactly the same. It is critical thinking. It is um, clear articulation of, of well-founded conclusions, as analysts do anywhere. Um, the differences are the specific product types and the delivery methods 
that each agency has. Each agency has a different way of packaging the material that goes to a decision maker. Any analyst needs to learn that specific expectation for packaging that their decision makers prefer. And you may, may, you may even go from in the same agency from one decision maker to and replaced by another one. And that new person likes things delivered differently than the, than the previous. So it's not just changing from an agency to another, although that is a large change. It can even be from one individual leader to another. So yes, there are differences, but there are, to, to a great extent, those differences are in the format, not the skills overall. So you move over to the DOD. Tell us about some of the things that you're up to. I started with the, back in D, and in the, back started in DOD in uh, early 2000s at in the UK at a US military facility in the UK, and I did that for about six years. And um, actually, lo- I loved living in the UK. My Children remember it very well. My wife loves it. My youngest child was born there. So it was a um, very enjoyable time. Came back to the United States to an agency that no longer exists. Uh, It was then called the Counterintelligence Field Activity, which was a DOD entity that coordinated counterintelligence activities across the, the department. I worked there also as an analyst for several years until that agency was. Uh, basically dissolved and subsumed under the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is where I've been since then. And in DIA, I've done a number of things, um, worked at from the tactical to the operational to the strategic levels, deployments to various places, to Iraq and to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, but then also more strategic level uh, policy types of jobs at the Pentagon. And so I've had some very, uh, a, a, a varied career, but I think I've enjoyed it. I mean, it's, everything's kind of built on each other. And for the past three years or so, I've been trying to take those things I've learned over the years and to make them available to a group of graduate students at the National Intelligence University to try to kind of bring along the next generation. And that has also been a one of my favorite things that I've done in my career is to teach courses and to to uh, do research that has enhanced those courses. That's kind of where I've come over the years. Just really briefly, could you just break down the difference between tactical intelligence, operational, and strategic? It is, as I mentioned earlier, dependent upon the decision maker that you are supporting at the tactical level. The decision maker is a low-level military official, usually military officer, whose job is that spans a small geographic area, maybe uh, at the um, on the battlefield, for example, maybe just a few hundred meters or or a mile or so. A tactical level decision maker looks directly in front of him or her and is making decisions to to both protect forces and to execute the mission in that small area. At the operational level, it's it's bigger. Um, it may be um, an entire country or an entire type of, of, of area like counterintelligence 
for counterterrorism. I'm looking for specific targets to to execute. At the strategic level, it's more at the national level. How do we at a national level make decisions to protect our country and to execute our policies in a way that keeps us safe and that keeps us strong? So the the Basically, the, the, a very a very broad sense the difference between them. You know, the tactical level, I, I I was deployed to Iraq where I was working with kind of those decision makers kind of on the ground. You know, at the operational level, I, when I was in the European theater, I was working with some specific operational entities. And when at the national level, I've worked on um, kind of DOD level policy or organizations. I was on a team that looked at DOD intelligence analysis policy. How does it work? How effective is it across the entire department? So um, that's, I guess, a very quick explanation of the difference of the, the, the levels. And that same spirit of breaking it down, again, just super briefly, what's the National Intelligence University? National Intelligence University is the intelligence community's grad so in university. There's both graduate courses, and most of the students there are graduate uh, students. Um, we have, there's also a small bachelor's degree program, which is a bachelor's degree completion program. In other words, students come in who have been working toward their bachelor's degree for a number of years. They gain credits up to a certain threshold, and they bring those credits with them, and they finish their final year of a bachelor's degree at the National Intelligence University. For the graduate program, we have two degrees. One's called the Masters of Science of Strategic Intelligence. The other is called the Masters of Science and Technology Intelligence. And they are for US government professionals who are interested in, in furthering their career with a master's degree. And so they focus on strategic level intelligence questions. Um, how does U.S. intelligence support policymaking? What are the major areas of emphasis, uh, both the geographic and the functional areas of emphasis um, for the U.S. intelligence community? And so we teach students um, so that they can go back into their agencies and be and have a, be more equipped to work at the strategic level. So that's that's what NIU is. Um, it is a, a a great place for a government professional to get a graduate degree. It is actually no cost to the student, but it is it does require there are certain requirements to becoming a student there. It is in a secure environment, for example, so I need to be able to have access to a secure environment, those sorts of things. So, and it's only for people that are in the intelligence community. Uh, for U.S. government, uh, including sometimes some students outside the intelligence community specifically. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. 
This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Tell us a little bit more about what you've been up to these past few years, because I know you've been pursuing a particular area of research that really interests you. Could you just tell us how you became interested in it and tell us what it is? Well, that area that you're referring to is is, uh, is intelligence defectors. That is a, a topic that I've been looking at for the past five years or so, or even more than that. It began even more than that, but focused heavily on that for the past five years or so. And where, how I got into that really was in, through that counterintelligence analytic career that I've been in. As I've been in, in that, I've seen that the intelligence that comes from counterintelligence sources is often filtered directly back into the counterintelligence world, catching spies or monitoring or identifying foreign intelligence activities around the world that target us. And I've had the thought that that information can be used for broader purposes uh, as a window into the strategic priorities, as we talked about strategic, the strategic priorities of a foreign power. Asking questions like, where does a government place its intelligence resources? It's finite intelligence resources. It It has to choose based upon its priorities where it's going to place those. Where does it a place um, what types of accesses does that government try to obtain through human sources or through technical sources, whatever means that government is using? And what drives the intelligence collection of that foreign country? And by looking at that, that gives us an indicator of the overall national security priorities and the threat perceptions of that foreign government. So looking at what's on the ground, and interpreting back from that the priorities that are behind those activities it began kind of with my counterintelligence background because I saw that information on a day-to-day basis. But I had an opportunity about 10 years ago to be what's called a Director of National Intelligence Exceptional Analyst Research Fellow. So a year-long fellowship where I got to do nothing but research, which is a luxurious um, opportunity to have. But it gave me a full year to concentrate on that theory of, of counterintelligence-derived information being used for strategic intelligence purposes. Intelligence officer defectors were some of the sources that I looked at for that study. Along with others, I did a, an unclassified study looking at Soviet-era intelligence collection from the early post-World War II time. I've chose that because it was un- it could be done unclassified, and many declassified sources are available from that time frame. Um, so I looked at that Soviet intelligence collection across the board, including defectors. Then, in about 2014, I began a PhD program at King's College London, and I transitioned that research that I had already done, and I focused it specifically on um, defectors, particularly Soviet defectors from intelligence and state security services and use that same concept. What did they tell us about 
the priorities of the Soviet system at the time. So it's kind of the, the thought process that led to my research. Um, I'm continuing with that research today. We'll talk more about that as we go along. But but that then led to the book that I published last year called Soviet Defectors. And it uses that methodology, that concept of gaining the the insights that defectors brought with them when they left the Soviet Union to derive those national level priorities. So that's in a nutshell where that all came from. When we're talking about defectors, we're talking about someone who's with one organization or nation and who then moves over to a rival organization or nation. Is that correct? That's correct. And when I talk about defectors, I mean those who actually physically moved or not those who stayed in place and can, but, but worked for someone else. So not spies, for example, but I'm looking at those who actually left their home organization. Um, defectors can affect any organization. They can affect political parties. They can, defect, they can affect companies. I focused specifically on those who left the Soviet, a Soviet intelligence or state security service and offered themselves to what was over various times a rival government to the Soviet government. That was a particularly uh, prevalent act for people to do during the Cold War. I mean, it, it began certainly before the Cold War, and there were numerous intelligence and state security officers from the Soviet Union who defected before the Cold War and during the war, it's during the World War II itself. But they were particularly um, prominent during the Cold War. And there were defectors that went both directions. There were defectors from the Western Alliance that went to the Eastern Bloc and defectors from the Eastern Bloc that went to the West. Um, both sides of the Cold War rivalry experienced that problem. I did a study not long ago looking at in the first 20 years of the Cold War after World War II. Just what was the overall count? And a, an exact count is not possible because there are, there will always be records that are still classified and that are not accept, accessible, but a rough count. And roughly there were about four times as many intelligence-related defectors that went westward out of the Soviet bloc that went eastward into the Soviet bloc. And so, but both sides experienced it. And those who left the Soviet bloc weren't, certainly weren't exclusively intelligence officers. There were many types of people who defected from the Soviet era, Soviet uh, bloc, dancers and sportsmen and journalists and government officials, and then among them also intelligence officers, which really were a minority of the total population. I looked at those intelligence officers specifically because they had special access to information. And by looking at them and analyzing the information they brought with them, it gave that kind of insider insight into the national security thinking behind what they were tasked with doing. One of the first questions that comes to mind that I was just thinking of was, are, are most of those defectors pushed or pulled? Give us a sense of some of, some of the motivations there. Have you analyzed that? And if you have, what did you come up with? I have looked at motivations and motivations. Um, I mean, I didn't do a psychological analysis of defectors. I am not 
qualified to do that. But motivations, there is not a, a single unified motivation for all defectors. You asked, are they pushed or are they pulled? And it is a mix of both, even within individuals. Um, there will be individuals who um, are frustrated with their job or with their boss or with their wife or with, with various personal reasons why people do defect. But those same personal reasons also impact people who become spies and who are recruited to stay in place. And becoming a defector goes a step beyond that. It's more dangerous. It's more risky to be a defector. And it's more conclusive to be a defector. So to, to be a defector, it takes more than just disgruntlement with your, with your, your, your life. You need to also see that there is something else somewhere else that is going to be better. You, you see that someone will accept you better than what, how you are accepted in your, your home organization. So for most defectors, it's a mix of push and pull. There are some who were very dissatisfied with the Stalinist system, for example, who some because they saw they, they were Leninists and they saw the purism of Leninism as being betrayed during the Stalin era. And they said, we can't live with this betrayal of Stalin any longer. So they left. Um, others were more interested in, in uh, democratic principles. And they saw that what they were experiencing inside the Soviet Union wasn't uh, meeting those democratic uh, principles and they sought something else. But again, to be a defector, you had to have a mix of those things to motivate you, to, to really drive you to make such a, a wrenching and complete break, particularly from a Soviet intelligence or security service where it was very dangerous to go back to. Whenever I think about Western defectors who went to the Soviet Union. Obviously, there's a variety of experiences there, but I think of people like Philby, people like Burgess. I mean, they just weren't happy when they went there. They just never seemed to settle. Was there a similar thing when Soviet defectors came to the West? Or help us understand that that two-way back and forth. There were a lot more Soviet defectors than than Western defectors, so there's there's probably a group a lot a greater range. There were some Soviet defectors who came to the West and had a hard time settling. Things were very new, things were very different than what they were used to, and they had expectations on them that they never would have had to have experienced in the Soviet Union. Expectations for the level of self responsibility that they had to take that wasn't something they really had experienced in the Soviet era, in the Soviet system. But there were others who sort of thrived in the West, who joined businesses or got graduate degrees or, or uh, became consultants and, and used their skills and really took advantage of the skills that they brought with them to make their life better. So there were a few uh, Soviet intelligence officers who did redefect, um, who went back after, in some cases, not feeling comfortable settling, 
and not feeling like they could survive in the West. In other cases, they may have been uh, specifically targeted by a Soviet intelligence service and lured back as well. But in most cases, they regretted returning to the Soviet system. That they, they found that that was a bad decision, often at the threat of their lives. So while there were some who did have a hard time settling, um, it, it, the, the greater, the preponderance of them actually did settle quite well. There is a book written by a Russian author named Dmitry Prokhorov called What is the Cost of Betraying One's Homeland? That the, is a Russian author. So looking at Soviet intelligence defectors, and it portrays them all as miserable and having terrible lives after they defected. There is a pretty clear propaganda message that the Russian government sends to make, to deter or to uh, disincentivize um, defection. But in, rea- in, the, in reality, the majority of defectors actually settled reasonably well. And I think even the Western defectors that went eastward, if you were, I remember reading a, an article by Kim Philby's wife in Moscow, he's, who said, I'm tired of everybody saying he was a sad drunk. He wasn't as sad and drunk as everyone says he was. So there is some of that kind of portrayal of traitors that goes both directions. Give us an example of a Soviet defector that that thrived and an example of one that it just didn't work out for whatever reason. Just to throw it into relief for, for our listeners. There uh, was one defector, for example, who um, came to the United States in 1940 named Leon Helfand. He changed his name once he came to the United States. And he lived under a different name. But he became a successful businessman in the United States. He actually had developed a relationship with Alan Dulles, who later became the director of central intelligence. And he had some high-level support that allowed him to have some success in the United States. His wife uh, actually settled quite successfully as well. And she became a quite uh, well-known uh, choreographer and dance instructor in New York City. And so they settled in New York City and, and did quite well for themselves. Others had a difficult, more difficult time. Igor Guzenka, who was one of the more prominent defectors to the West, defected in Ottawa, Canada in 1945, just at the close of World War II. And he, for the first year or so, while he was being debriefed and while the investigations of his uh, of his information were being conducted in the United States and UK and Canada. He was he did reasonably well, and um, but then his life became more difficult, and he did become a little more in kind of inside himself, and and he was known as being a difficult person after when he got older. So again, the, the spectrum is wide, everywhere from very successful to. Another another case, Nikolai Khachlov, who defected in 1954, um, got a graduate degree, a, a, a doctoral degree at, you know, I believe it was the University of North Carolina, and he became a professor in Southern California, and, and he died in the 1990s uh, when he was quite in his, in, old, in his older years. So he um, he also settled in the United States reasonably well. So there's there's 
there's a mix. Are we talking about defectors to the West in general or only to the United States? And if it's the West in general, did they, did some struggle in some countries more than others? Or help us understand that picture. My research is looking at Soviet defectors wherever they went. And though the places where they went changed over time. Um, initially, most defectors didn't come to the United States. I mean, in the early Soviet era, in the 20s and early in, uh, in particularly, most went to France because that was where the anti-Soviet Russian emigre community was, was concentrated. And that was to a great extent. What they defected to was to that anti-Soviet cause as much as to a foreign government. Over time, it I mean, during World War II, most defectors went to Germany because that was the main enemy, as the later it later became known to the to the Soviet Union at the time. So there are many who, to save themselves from German POW camps, offered themselves to the German uh, intelligence services. Um, after the world after World War II, the bulk of uh, defectors went to either the United Kingdom or the United States. Um, in the first few years after World War II, the United Kingdom and the United States were probably close to equal in that. Uh, the number then became much more uh, weighted toward the United States as the Cold War went on. But some defectors, I mean, in the early Cold War time, U.S. and U.K. didn't really have a solid policy for handling defectors. They had to figure it out because they, they hadn't really had to deal with the flow of defectors that they had started re receiving after the end of World War II. So they started to kind of work this out. What do we do with these people once they get here? And some of them, they would arrive, they would be debriefed, and then the handling service would stash them somewhere, would send them to South America or to Australia. And some of them did fine there, Others of them struggled because they didn't speak Spanish or they didn't, or they didn't speak Portuguese in Brazil or or they they were given false identities and the false identity really wasn't very deep, so it didn't didn't work for them very well. Some of them just just struggled. Others of them just got jobs and lived the, the rest of their lives as as simple laborers and they were happy to leave the strategic environment and just be a simple person for the rest of their lives included farmers or tram drivers or taxi drivers and a, ver a variety of of careers that people took up after they defected and and a lot of times those careers just were were simple things that they wanted to stay out of the limelight so it wasn't really based upon a country specifically, um, it was um, more over time, the uh, Western powers developed their handling processes more uh, specifically, and, and they, they became more uh, well-developed. And as they became better developed, they were able to settle defectors more effectively. Walk us through the process of what happens to a defector. So I guess this will vary by country, but let's just say the United States. So a defector comes here. 
How does that all play out? I'm assuming there's an initial debriefing and then what happens after that? Are they just sort of left to their own devices and they can go off the radar? Or is there always a degree of suspicion? Well, maybe they've been planted here and when we take our eye off of the ball, they could be up to other things. How does that play out? And I recognize that this question will also depend on the the level of the defector. So if it's a Soviet general, then that's going to be something different from a, a much lower level defector, a submarine sailor jumped off of the ship and swam to shore. Like, walk us through that process. I know that there's a big story there, but help us understand that a little bit more. A defector often had to prove bona fides initially have to show that they're not a a plant. And interestingly, in my research um, of the roughly 160 defectors from Soviet intelligence and state security services that I've looked at, about 80 of them or 90 of them in my book and then post, so post book defectors as well, actually I have not seen a single plant. There were several who once they arrived in the West did, were re-recruited and were they did work for the Soviet Union after they had already arrived, but that was after they had gotten into the West, and they weren't necessarily planted that way to start with. But even with that, um, there were suspicions of defectors that changed over time and changed over circumstances of the Cold War in particular. But a defect, some defectors... Um, well, the Soviet Union told its people that when you arrive in the West, you will be arrested, you will be treated as an enemy, and you may even be sent back. That was what the Soviet Union tried to persuade its people was the situation for defectors, clearly to deter people from taking such a step for fear that they will uh, will not be received well. The Western powers tried very hard to counter that propaganda by using defectors often in counter-propaganda, saying, I arrived here and I was treated well, or they gave me a new job, or I don't believe the things that the Soviet Union told me all these years. Now that I'm in the West, I see that what I've, the, the things I've been told aren't true. So. The West used them to try to persuade others to come. And so part of what the West did was defectors basically were good for two things, for intelligence and for propaganda. So that intelligence often was initially tactical. What can you tell us that we can immediately fold back into an operation? And then sometimes it became more strategic. What does the Soviet Union think about such and such a thing? Or how does the Soviet Union approach the United States or the, or the West? So bigger picture questions. And those tactical questions are ones that when a defector immediately arrived, they were more, they became obsolete quicker. And so you had to debrief a defector quickly to get that perishable information that something can be done with on an actionable level soon. So that 
kind of first wave of defection, I'm sorry, of, in, of debriefings tends to go pretty quickly. Then one of the advantages of a defector over an individual who is recruited and stays in place is that you have a longer period under more secure circumstances to ask people those less perishable questions, those questions that are at a higher level that don't change as quickly. So that debriefing takes a, a, a varying amount of time, depending, as you pointed out, depending on the level of a, de a defector. If someone is a, a private who crosses the border from east to west Berlin, that debriefing may not take very long because that private has visibility into a very narrow uh, range of interesting information. But if that person was a, a KGB case officer who had been in the intelligence service for 20 years, it may take a long time for that debriefing to be, to, to be done because that person is going to have a lot of varied information. And a couple of good examples of that, for example, are um, Yuri Rastvorov, who defected in, in Japan in 1954, who had a, who had a long career in uh, the KGB and its predecessor organizations, and whose debriefings did last quite a while, and who provided information that on the tactical level led to some immediate arrests of people in Japan, of Japanese government officials who were working for the Soviet Union. But on the on the more strategic level, he provided information that went back a few years, but gave in, gave us ideas about how the Soviet Union was approaching the nuclear conflict, or how the Soviet Union viewed Japan, the U.S.-Japan relationship, and those kind of bigger questions. So that initial debriefing happens. The the, the length is varied, and then. As I mentioned, the Western powers learned over time that they needed to take care of that person better. Sometimes, as I said, they'd stash them somewhere to stay, you know, go, go live your life. And later on, they became much more caring because they realized that this person it may have a difficult time settling. And if we're not careful, that person may choose to go back. And the propaganda advantage that Russia received when a person did return was uh, substantial. And it was quite a, a, de a deterrent to further defectors. So we did, we meaning pr pr primarily the United States and the, the Great Britain, did try to assist those people to settle in jobs, in new careers, to find them a, a new life so that they are comfortable and that they are not uh, regretting their decision. Trying to get our heads around the process, is there a specific part of the US intelligence community that would deal with defectors? Is it primarily the FBI? And if so, is there a specialized defector debriefing unit or is it much more ad hoc and variegated. I'm going to go into a lot of details about how the U.S. intelligence community does that, but I will say that in 1950, early on, as the United States was developing this that's what, new policy... Sorry, that's what I mean historically. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, historically. Yeah. Then two 
what are were called National Security Council directives, intelligence directives, NSCIDs as they were called, were published in 1950. One focused primarily on defectors who defected outside the United States. And that NSCID, NSCID 13, as it was called, gave the responsibility, the U.S. responsibility for handling those defectors to the CIA. And it's the, 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 the companion National Security Council Intelligence Directive, NSCID 14, talked about defectors inside the United States. And they were handled primarily by the FBI. But they also had sometimes that strategic level information that may have gone beyond just kind of internal security issues that the FBI dealt with, so they would be handled jointly. Early on, there were some growing pains in the agencies getting used to handling and, and sharing those defectors. And I mentioned in my book an example of, you know, I actually in a paper that I published, an example of uh, Nikolai Kochlo, for example, who um, defected in Germany, and he approached the U.S. government in Germany, but then eventually was brought to the United States. And it was early on as that policy was developing. And the U.S. government agencies responsible for debriefings didn't have a complete agreement on who was supposed to be in charge. So it took a little bit of negotiation to, uh, to make that work. But over time, that became much more solidified. And it became much more an interagency process. So yes, I mean, in the British system, it was it was even different than that because the British intelligence community is much smaller, but um, it was still a mix of positive intelligence information that could come from a defector being developed by the positive intelligence organization, MI6, and the internal security information being developed by MI5. And so they, they, there was a, a handoff between the agencies in the UK as well, depending upon the portfolio of the individual. And another question that quite interests me is, if you're a defector, to what extent is there a target on your back? Is it a dangerous thing to be a defector? Are you constantly looking over your shoulder or would that just be a propaganda own goal to go out and kill the defector. So I realize this will vary over time and maybe you can speak a little bit more about the historical lineage of things like uh, Skirpal and Litvinenko and, and so forth. Assassination tended to be the last resort. Um, there were defectors who were targeted for assassination during the Cold War. I mentioned Nikolai Kakhlov a couple of times. He was actually poisoned, and he was with a radioactive substance, and he was very sick for a number of months, but he did fully recover. In an operation that looked a little bit like the Litvinenko operation of 2006, although in Kakhlov's example, he did recover. Um, another defector was named um, Mikhail Mondic, who defected just after the end of World War II, and he was also, there was a poisoning directed at him. He actually felt quite guilty because the poison was somehow placed, he believes anyway, into a bowl of caviar. He and his wife were on a ship and he nicely 
gave his wife his caviar because he was trying to be good to her. And she got very sick. And it turned out that his caviar bowl was the one that was poisoned. So there were defectors who um, were targeted, but that tended to be the last resort. There were other operations that were attempted first. The first was to lure them back to the Soviet Union, because most of these defectors were tried in absentia um, for often with a sentence of execution, particularly those who had access to such high-level classified information as intelligence officers did, they were often sentenced to execution. So the first option was to try to lure them back. And the Soviet Union was successful in doing that on a number of occasions, sometimes by coercing their families, by um, recruiting an ex-girlfriend who pleaded on uh, that the defector come back and then the defector was arrested immediately upon arrival. So various lures were used to bring people back. But that's that's the first choice, first option. The second option was to recruit them in the West or recruit them outside. This also was successful in some occasions, where particularly if someone had a job that was valuable for Soviet intelligence, if they had gotten a job in the U.S. intelligence community or in Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, which was a particularly high-priority target for the Soviets during the Cold War. People who got jobs in those entities were often targeted for re-recruitment so that they, the Soviet Union could take advantage of their accesses that they had gained as defectors. Others became prominent in the Russian emigre community, and the Soviet government sometimes often targeted them as penetrations of the Russian emigre community. So that's the second option, is try to recruit them for intelligence purposes. The last option really was assassination, and that was reserved for particularly difficult uh, defectors, those who had been particularly embarrassing or who had been very vocal in their anti-Soviet pronouncements after defection. And that became particularly prominent when two KGB assassins themselves defected, one in 1954 and one in 1961, Nikolai Kakhlov in 1954 and Bogdan Stashinsky in 1961. And they both talked about their assassination missions. And that was highly embarrassing for the Soviet hierarchy. And they that it persuaded the Soviet leadership that assassinations could only be exercised in the most extreme cases. Now that didn't mean that they gave up assassination altogether. It just meant that they were more careful and they became less common. And as things like detente came along in the 1970s, and um, the assassinations actually became quite rare. Now the fact that we see two post-Soviet defectors who are now, who we know have, or intelligence defectors who have been the targets of assassinations, one successful with Alexander Litvinenko and one less uh, unsuccessful with Sergei Skripal. That is an indicator that the Putin regime is returning to Soviet, to Stalin era practices. 
that it is looking more and more like what the Stalin policies looked. Traitors to the Soviet system or to the Russian system today are seen as, as, as the worst possible type of person. Um, treason in the Soviet system is, or the Russian system is taken very seriously. Vladimir Putin has quoted a phrase, there's no such thing as a former Czechist. And what he means by that is several things. One is, it's kind of this esprit de corps, we are an elite organization and, and we're the best of the best sort of thing. That's one side of that statement. The other side of that statement is, don't ever try to leave. Because if you do, we will remember. And we will not let you forget. Sergei Skripal was probably a good example of that, of someone who did betray the system by becoming a British intelligence source, was then traded as a, in a, uh, a swap in 2010, but then was sent a very clear message that we have not forgotten who you are. So there haven't been a lot of post-Soviet treason targetings. There have been other assassinations, but they have been a different type of assassinations, and those are for different reasons. Like, for example, there have been a number of Chechen militants who have been targeted for assassination outside Russia in the post-Soviet era. Russia sees them very differently. They're not traitors, per se. Those are military enemies. And so they are seen as legitimate military targets. The traitors like Litvinenko and Skripal, from the Russian perspective, are a rare and different type of target. So you mentioned it's a return to the Stalinist kind of mindset. So am I right in thinking that during the Stalin era, this was like a common tool or it was more common but then later on in the history of the Soviet Union, say under Brezhnev and Gorbachev, there was much less of this, and then it came back under Putin, or was it always there? Or help us understand if it's a graph, where is the curve going? It was never completely off the table, but it became much less common after Stalin left, after Stalin died. And when Khrushchev became the leader of the Soviet Union in 1956, he was more sensitive to those types of assassinations, operations, but he wasn't completely against them. Um, Bogdan Stashinsky, for example, was an assassin, and he targeted and he successfully assassinated two Ukrainian nationalist leaders in Germany, one in 1957 and one in 1959 during the Khrushchev era. But again, they were kind of military targets. They were seen as, as uh, legitimate targets because they represented a militant group inside the Soviet Union. Those traitor targets, such as Khaklov uh, or Mondich or, or a few others, uh, Lalin, uh, who defected the UK in 1971, was reportedly a target as well. That was reserved for particularly high-level information leaks. And after the Stalin era, they did become less, less common, and they were much more careful. 
if there was any chance that the, that the assassination was going to be tied back to the Soviet government, then it was, it was a high, considered a very high-risk operation. So, again, they're never off the table completely. Even during the Khrushchev era, there were some assassination operations conducted, but it was just not at the same level as it was during the Stalin time. Looking at Soviet defectors, are they much more likely to come from the parts of the Soviet Union that weren't Russia? So we look at it and proportionately there's 80% of the defectors are non-Russian. Or is that... Actually, yes. no, it's the other way around. It's the other um, way around. And why do you think that is? Well, I think that is because non-Russians were less represented in intelligence and security services. Not that they weren't represented at all, but they were much less represented. So the population from which they wish to draw is much more heavily Russian. Now, that is a difference when you're talking about illegal intelligence officers. Illegal officers were those who were sent abroad under non-Russian identities with no visible connection to the Soviet Union and who portrayed themselves as someone completely separate from the Soviet Union. There were two big categories of people that were chosen to be illegals. One was Russians who had to be trained to portray themselves as a non-Russian. And another, those who were non-Russians already, who were who had it easier, basically. They they could they had they spoke a foreign language already and they could naturally portray themselves as someone who was not connected to the Soviet Union. Amongst those illegals, there was a higher proportion of non-Russians. But that's a subset of the overall intelligence and state security officer defectors. It's just that particular population was more vulnerable because they were out there all by themselves. And they didn't have an embassy to go back to, or they used impersonal communications, and they didn't have as much face-to-face connection with someone. So their non-Russian identities became more of a factor in their lives. But those who were stationed abroad uh, or who were inside the Soviet Union under some sort of official cover at an embassy or the border guard or something like that inside the Soviet Union, um, they were mostly Russians. And so most of the defectors from that group were Russian. Proportionally, are, are more of the defectors coming from, say, the KGB or the GRU, or is that a pretty equal distribution compared to the overall numbers in each of those institutions? The preponderance of defectors come from this the KGB and its predecessors, um, the civilian subordinate organization. There are many fewer military intelligence or GRU defectors. Not that there were none, but there were just fewer. In the very early days of the Soviet Union, the 1920s, there was a larger proportion of defectors coming from the military intelligence organization. But as time went on, that proportion dropped. And by, in, in fact, in my book, the last two chapters that look at the 1945-1954, uh, basically, the, the, po- the first decade after the Soviet Union, there were only four GRU defectors amongst about 30 total defectors. So they were a much smaller proportion after the World War II. 
getting into after my book into the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and later, there was still a smaller number um, than the civilian subordinate. Or um, and, and there were some very prominent GRU defectors, people like uh, Vladimir Rezun, who wrote under the the name Viktor Suvorov, who's published a number of books about his time in the GRU. And Stanislav Lunyov, who's also published a book about his time in the GRU. So there are some pretty prominent GRU defectors out there, but they are fewer. And why that is, probably a much more military sense of loyalty. And the GRU was not responsible for internal security functions as the KGB was. And often, what defectors from the KGB were leaving was the sense that they were they were tasked with spying on their own people. That was something that they didn't feel comfortable doing. Um, the GRU didn't have that. And so uh, they were much more purely intelligence, looking at foreign targets for military decision-making and they didn't have that, what is in the, in the Russian system, that Czechist, that, uh, the Czechist um, kind of uh, mindset of looking for threats everywhere. So uh, that, I think, possibly a reason why there are more from the Czechist services, the KGB and its predecessors. Tell us just a little bit more about your book. So it's available through Edinburgh University Press. Where can listeners get a hold of it? Where can they check it out? And just give them a, a brief synopsis of what it is you set out to do. Well, it's in a lot of libraries um, in electronic format mostly. Um, it is available on the Edinburgh University Press bookstore. It's also available on online bookstores, Amazon and various other bookstores. It is available in a number of libraries for checkout, particularly university libraries, a number of libraries uh, around the world. Uh, in the United States, in Europe, in, in, in Southeast Asia, there are libraries that have um, gotten electronic copies of it. And that can be found on WorldCat. You just look up Kevin Real Soviet Defectors, and you'll see, find a library near you that has it. I am working on the next volume, basically. The, uh, I, uh, this book runs from 1924 to 1954. I'm doing the research for the second half, which goes from 1954 on. And then that that will then hopefully also be available in book form in the next year or so. I look forward to that. Well, thanks so much for your time, Kevin. I've really appreciated speaking to you. That's great to, to talk to you. Thank you for your time and thank you for this opportunity. I, I, I love talking about this, this topic. Um, it is what I, if you ever talk to a researcher about what they like to research, you'll be able to talk to them for a very long time. So um, this is what I enjoy discussing, so thank you for the opportunity to do that. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi everybody, it's Maria Varmazas here your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. 
please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.